This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that never, well, almost never, double dips. I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and I'm here with the Managing Director of Strawman, as always, Mr. Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very good. Mr. Scott Phillips, how are you? Mate, oh, it's very formal of us. Uh, I'm, I'm exceptionally well, thank you. I should, maybe I should call you Andrew Page Esquire. That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? <laughs> bit, a bit Elaborate of class, all you like. Prestige. <laughs> Mate, uh, well, you're not getting the Sir Andrew just yet. That's up to the coin, mate. I can't help you with that one. We are recording this on Thursday the 26th of August, and I only say that at the top because, man, earnings season, hey? <laughs> it's been a busy old time. I think I might have said earlier this month, earnings season is one of those things that I kind of – I kind of look forward to, but also kind of like there's so much coming. It's like you, it's, you're careful what you wish for, and then you kind of get through. It's like, oh my god, I'm so busy. You finish like, what do I do now? You, you mm. kind of, you kind of, you get used to the cadence of earnings season, right? You get used to this kind of, you know, trying to trying to process so much stuff that's coming our way, and then it almost stops literally dead. It's like, well, now what do I do? The Monday after earnings season is just it's a weird feeling. It is. It very much is. Well, you know what? Just through um, circumstance, this time around, there's been a few things where companies that I follow very closely have, have released results, but I haven't been able to get to it on the day. Right. And it's really burned and burned. And then, you know, at some <laughs> point later, I, I read it and, it's, and it reminds me, well, what was the big deal? What's the rush? This, there so rarely is <laughs> exactly. with That's these so things, you know? Yep. Um, yep. Absolutely. Anyway. It's a, it's a funny one, mate. It's um, uh, so... <laughs> I, I, I quick tangent, well, tangent on a tangent on a tangent. Let's just keep going. Um, <laughs> I was only thinking just this morning. I have a US dollar or US portfolio, US shares, US market, and an Australian ASX portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just, you know, we talk a lot about you know checking the market and watching share prices, and we try desperately just to help people not do that. And it just, it was just reminded. It's not new, but it just reminded this morning. I probably haven't looked. I, haven't, I absolutely haven't looked at my US portfolio at all this week because mm-hmm. the market closes at six a.m. our time. And so, kind of by the time I'm saying, oh, okay, Marcus, I get on with my day, and I just don't think of it. I don't get mm. to it. It's not, and it's not important. It's one of those things where, but during the trading day, it's like, well, I'm at my desk, and my brokerage account's only I click away, and Google can be every share price I want at a second's notice, and I've got to do the all odds for, for radio commitments. And it's one of those things where just, you know, just literally being in a different time zone and having a different cadence of work. Mm. I, and I, my US portfolio is probably about, it's a little bit smaller than my Australian portfolio, but not by much. So it's not mm. even like it's this, you know, afterthought dollar value wise. Mm. It's almost as big. It's just that I just, I just don't, right? And nothing's conscious about it. Nothing's deliberate. It's just funny how when you change circumstances, it reminds you that a lot of the time we spend checking and reviewing and thinking and obsessing. It's just because our brains have nothing else to do, right? So it's almost the Twitter thing. You're like, check, check Twitter, check Facebook, check the, check the stock market. When you take yourself out of that, it changes things dramatically. Well, not to go down an even deeper rabbit hole. Oh, go on. Um, uh, well, it's the same for me in Bitcoin. Like, you know, not to right. get into that discussion, but I just I just don't look at it. I, I never yeah, do. Yeah. And then every now and again, someone will say something to me, either, aha, it's down, or, oh, it's up. It's like, oh, is it? I just, oh, really? I just yeah. don't look. It's <laughs> Exactly. Well, but you, it's you, nice. You know, and our long-term listeners know that, uh, I might have mentioned it since you've been back, but famously, I can't sell uh, using the wallet that I use, the app that I use to buy my Bitcoin because for some reason they let it, well, I say for some reason. <laughs> Go figure. They let, Australian, yeah, they let Australians buy Bitcoin but not sell the Bitcoin, which is kind of, you know, the definition of a captive market. Uh, and so the app is actually on my phone somewhere. But even that, I think I changed phones at some point. And it just, as you say, when you actually get out of that cadence, you just stop, right? Not that I really get. Mm. I think I had a hundred bucks invested in it, what, five years ago or something. So it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, exactly the same thing. It's just, it's just that by the time you kind of get out of the habit, and that's why habits are so really, really powerful and important in both directions. They can be really useful or really destructive. It's just useful to think, well, I'm not going to check. Why would I check? There's nothing going on. Why bother? And you don't. And, and nothing changes, as you say, like you said about earnings, to go back to your original point. Just because you didn't check on the day, it's like, oh, whatever. Like it's, you know, doesn't make that much difference, right? Yep. And it's not just behavior too. It's, it's just having, knowing what you're doing, I suppose. So if you're someone who's a trader and you're trying to yeah. take an opportunity in a short-term kind of play, you can't do that kind of stuff. But then you're yeah. just buying really great companies for the long-term or yeah. Yeah. you've got a long-term thesis on some kind of crypto or so, whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not dependent on the day-to-day. So you don't need to watch the day-to-day, even though it's yeah. hard not to yeah, sometimes. Exactly. Nailed it, nailed it. Mate, um, yeah, that's a, a, nice, a nice setup because we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about earnings. I do want to go macro just once. Um, I'm going to try not to mention the C word today, mate. Um, I don't know if I'll make it, but let's try. Uh, although it does have an impact on what I'm about to talk about. Shane Oliver, who's the AMP chief economist, is a very normal, sensible, very kind of you know, level-headed kind of guy. He's not your screaming, 
you know, prognosticator, and he's he, generally speaking, his his you know his tone and his style is to just calm <laughs> calm your farm, calm stuff down. Um, just you know, tell it as it is, not get overexcited either direction. Just you know, really basic, really normal, really good quality economics. So I was a little bit concerned today to read in the AFR. He's saying there's a forty five percent chance of a double dip recession now. And when I went to school, mate, 45 was only five percentage points away from 50. So I'm going to call it about an even chance. Now, all of us probably gone 45, I assume, to kind of, he's probably thinking, well, even chance, maybe more likely we don't. So he's just tipped at 55, 45 to avoid sitting sure entirely on the fence. Mm. Um, but he's pretty much saying, look, you know, toss of a coin here. We may be in for a double dip recession. Now, we all expect the current quarter, which is uh, August through October. No. July through September, I'll get it right, um, the September quarter will be negative because GDP's down, retail sales are down, lockdowns are biting in 60% of the country. This is going to be a, a tough quarter. But I think Oliver's looking out, and I won't put words in his mouth, but it seems he's looking out to the October to December quarter and saying, well, we kind of expected that was the quarter where we'd be out of lockdown, start to spend again, and just that, again, the coiled spring of kind of, you know, the, the cafes we didn't go to, the restaurants we didn't eat at, the retail shopping we didn't do. When that starts to come back into the economy, things take off again. It does sound or seem that he's kind of saying, well, maybe New South Wales gets pushed out to October, November for lockdowns. Maybe Queensland and Victoria have their own issues. Maybe this goes for a bit longer. And if we get two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, they used to call it declines, but now it's negative growth. Um, <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the official definition of a recession. So that would be the double dip, the second recession after the middle of last year going into a recession. Uh, and I kind of think I... <laughs> I'm an optimist, man. I don't want to believe he's right, but maybe that 45% is about right. No, I, I think so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you say, what is it, 60% of the country in lockdown? Um, yeah. You know, and, and we don't have the same kind of support this time around. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's a better, better than even chance. I mean, again, recession is a very broad term. There's yes, very different flavours of recession. <laughs> Some can be yeah. really yeah. broad yeah. and brutal. Yeah. Others can be more short and sharp. Um, and as we said last time, you know, it's the, 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 what's different about these ones, which are in some way engineered, you know, they're sort mm-hmm. of done on, on purpose with the lockdowns, yes, yeah. is that they are um, unfairly targeting mm-hmm. some, some mm-hmm. people in, in, in industries far more than others. For a lot of people, as we've, we've said plenty of times before, it's, it's just not a big deal. You work from yeah. home, it's a bit more frustrating having the kids around and doing all that stuff, but your pay still keeps coming in, but your expenses drop off. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, a, on a financial term, better for, for a lot of people. But for others, it's just like 100 to zero overnight. Yeah, type yeah right, right, right. And that's what that's what makes it so interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I look, again, it's always hard not to get into politics when you talk about this, but I, I would <laughs> I would be making sure that there was a lot, lot more support um, out there at this kind of time because we know it is going to be short. We know it is going to have actually good payback in yeah. terms of, you're in, encouraging people to it, it, people who are going out in a lot of cases, particularly from the poor areas, are doing so because they have to. Yeah, you know, just to put yeah. food on the table. But you've got to, you've got to, you've got to really give them a strong incentive not to, and that just it just pays itself back. How many billions of dollars are lost each week in in lockdown? <laughs> so, so anyway, in a week I, in New Sydney alone, right? So maybe it's uh, two billion New South Wales wide. Maybe it's a heart one and a half. Add another what three quarters in in Victoria. It starts to add up pretty quickly. Mate, it's, it's what I always say. Like, this is going to suck no matter which way you look at it. Yeah, that's but, right. But one, one way is less sucky. So it's, it's going to cost yeah. a lot. Like yeah. spend some money, make yeah. sure people have the proper incentives, you know, keep them, keep them at home. But yeah, yeah it, 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 and, and, that, and that just means that once, once the, the health situation is sorted, the economy mm. does bounce back mm. extremely strongly. Yeah, yeah, but if right. people have been really weakened along the way this time around, that's, that's, the, that's the bigger risk for me. I think a, a, a second recession is, is almost mm. certain. It's oh, a question yeah, of whether it's different. more dragged out than it needs to be or whether it's a short and okay. sharp one. That's interesting. I, I'm almost certain you, what, 80%, 75%, 90%? What do you mean? Sorry? You say you said a recession's almost certain. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think, well, very, sorry, I should be careful with my language here. I, I think right. very likely, as Oliver says, it's 50-50. I, I'd probably say it's a bit hard. I mean, just as I say, look at, look at what's happened and mm. where we are and, and in fact, not getting, not looking to get any, any better anytime soon either. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst thing, right? Yeah. You, you know? So it'd be different if vaccination rates were, were higher yeah. and numbers weren't so yeah. high and all the rest of it. But anyway, so all I'm saying is I think it's, I think it's a good chance that, that we, we do. And yeah. if, we, if we do, the question really is, is, is if it's a, a quick one, one or yep. or one that more dragged out than it necessarily needs to be. I think, it, yeah, look, I like that, mate. I, I think it is worth adding. And I, I'm really, again, without getting into politics particularly, but let's go policy. Um, 
I am really, really pleased that governments, state, federal, and both parties have kind of realised what's needed to get through something like this. And I said before on this podcast, I'm pretty sure that I think we got through it well because we had the GFC, where people realise austerity isn't the answer to these sort of problems. Mm. And so, hard lockdowns, health-wise, one question. Second part of it is, what support do you give? What you know, this this would have been if unemployment had spiked to 15 percent because governments went, oh, can't help you, sorry guys, you're out of work. Mm. Um, it would have been what four or five years worth of recovery. Oh yeah. Um, the fact that the fact that support exactly. is here now keeps individuals in in work and in houses, and frankly. When we talk about the economy, we need to remember it's a collection of people, not just a you know some sort of um, uh, abstract concept. It's, it's generally people and businesses and all that kind of stuff. So that's positive, I think. Uh, and to some degree, to my um, my general approach, my general thought is that they've they've spent the money to keep so we can bounce back quickly. That that's almost mm. exactly the point to your point, which is had governments done some, something different, we wouldn't be able to bounce back so quickly. And a recession isn't a recession. You know the old oils ain't oils ad for those who are old enough to remember those ads. Remember those ones? Yes, they that's do. Right, oils ain't oils, yep. Sol. Yep. Um, but that, the benefit of that, or the, the lesson for that, is that you know a normal recession would be this grinding, you know. 12, 18 months of kind of just slow decline and then slow recovery that takes another three or four years to get back to full capacity. Lots of people out of work, lots of businesses going broke. This time around, we're kind of, it's a technical recession to end technical recessions. It's kind of, you know, the, the very definition of it. Yes, it's negative GDP, but the actual economic impact is relatively limited to relatively few workers, relatively few businesses. Mm. And again, terrible for those individuals, so I don't want to gloss over it, but, you know, to the extent that this is just a mathematical outcome rather than, an economic slump in the traditional sense with the, you know, ramifications, long-term side effect. I think that might be the the big win out of this is, is we actually learned how to do this, we do it well. I hope so. That's the trouble. You can always do it a bit better, I suppose, and there's always, always armchair better. critics like us. But. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're paid for. Don't, don't, don't criticise the armchair, armchair critics. Well, I have said, <laughs> by the way, I know there are, there are a lot of problems with, with things like JobKeeper the first time around, a lot of either rotting or simply just unintended consequences, depending on which way you look at it. But... Um, I can't, I can't criticise the federal government. Firstly, no one else criticised them at the time, so it's all fine for us to be Monday morning quarterbacks that, oh, in hindsight, they should have done X, Y, Z. It's like, yeah, mm. but they did... They per- did perfect they did is the enemy of... Perfect it, is the enemy of good, right? I can't... I, mm. Yes, there's a whole rant on that one. Um, people who would happily have said, no, let's not do JobKeeper just in case Jerry Harvey makes a few quid. Now, I know you're not a big Jerry fan and that's fine, um, <laughs> but, you know, the idea of, the idea of like, of making it take longer to do or somehow change it or not do it at all because just in case Jerry makes a dollar, people are really quick to cut off their nose despite their faces, right? Yeah. Like in this case, yeah. he's right. Perfect is absolutely the enemy of the good and the good was really, really, really bloody good. Mm. You know, if we spend a hundred and something billion dollars and waste a couple of billion, well, do you want to? Of course not. But yeah. geez, I mean, if you can do any project without a 2% cost overrun, you're doing well, right? This is kind yeah. of, that's just, that's just how, what happens. And I think the, mm. the, the political rubbish about, you know, uh, the op- oh, I won't get political, but the opposition targeting those companies as if, you know, Jerry made some money, therefore Scott Morrison's a bum, therefore... It's like, guys, come on, like, the, you know, th- there's there's a bigger story here. And by the way, just as the Libs did to Labor during the, the Rudd Swan cash splash, um, they're all way too quick to try and find angles rather than recognise that sometimes good policy is actually just good policy. And mm. yeah, we do it differently next time. Yeah, in hindsight, it could be done better. But man, like, you know, the bounce back out of recession, that's just spectacular. Mm. Yep. All yep. right. <clears throat> I, let's not talk about the economy anymore, mate, because there was a big week of earnings. We've already talked about plenty of companies uh, out this week and still some more to come today. And this is, as I said, recording Thursday and early next week. So I assume I'll have one more round of earnings season next time. But while we're here, let's talk about, well, some companies that have been on the on the docket, some we've talked about before. Should we start with, you got the drink ready? We start, should we start with Kogan? Drink. <laughs> now, yeah, let's, I, let's start with I might, be, I might be biased. I own shares. We've talked about it a lot. It's probably overrepresented in the podcast, really, honestly. Um, but <clears throat> because we have talked about it before and because people have listened, for better or worse, um, I had about three or four different tweets and, and a Facebook messages during the week saying, hey, Kogan, what's going on there? What do you think? Can you talk about it on, on the podcast? So we will. Probably would have anyway because it's, as I said, we've talked about it a lot and it's a, it's a reasonably high-profile business, so we'll do it anyway. Um, these numbers were... On one hand, pretty ugly, and on one hand, pretty good, mate. Let's take the ugly first, and the biggest of the percentages, profit fell by more than 80%. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist look at that and go, so that's not great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Losing four-fifths no. of your profit, not so good. Wasn't there supposed to be COVID? What were things supposed to be picking up? What the hell's going on? So there was that. And we should also say they scrapped their dividend. So if you wanted to find fault, if you wanted to find reasons not to love Kogan, to sell your shares, to avoid buying them, those are two pretty good ones. A massive, massive fall in profit. They still made a profit, but a massive fall in profit. 
and a uh, and, and a cutting of the dividend, or axing of the dividend for now at least, probably to conserve some cash. Makes again logical sense as a business, but if you're an investor who kind of like that dividend, you're not you're not going to be pretty happy today. Mm. On the other hand, two very big numbers as well. Not quite as big as eighty percent, but a forty-five-ish percent growth in customer numbers and a fifty-plus percent growth in revenue year on year. These are two sets of numbers, top and bottom line, going in very, very, very different directions, mate. Um, I'll give a bit of colour and then ask you your thoughts. Firstly, they paid about $15 in executive bonuses, retention bonuses to Rosalind Kogan, David Schaefer. I think it was just those two guys. Javis Schaefer's the CFO. Rosalind's the CEO, as people know. So that was $15 million out of what was otherwise, you know, only only tens of millions of dollars worth of profits. So that, was, that hurt. And they had about $8 million of what they call demurrage. It's one of those industry terms that basically talks about the costs of holding too much inventory. Um, they just got it wrong. They, they thought that the COVID sales boom would go for longer. They bought inventory appropriately and all of a sudden realised they had way too much inventory. Sales just simply slowed when we went back to the shops and Koga was left holding the baby. That's kind of, you know, a, a lesson for everybody, including them. Uh, so that, that was about $8 million. So $23 million bucks worth of profit lost on those two numbers alone, or at least money that wouldn't have been there had those things not happened. Other than that, so let's let's kind of explain that a little bit. Still a big fall in profit, mate. What do you make of the Kogan results? I'll step back for a second and, and just say that I, I think we have to remember just how successful this has been as a business um, since it started. It, was, it started in 2006 and in 15 years it's gone from literally out of his mum's garage yeah. to $1 billion in, in gross annual sales. And oh, and what's been interesting um, about this is it's largely been self-funded, certainly since listing. It's delivered a decent profit along the way and a dividend along the way, as mm-hmm. you were saying before. So it's been yeah. it's been remarkable growth. And yeah, they had a they had a crappy year. I think you've always got to be careful when you look at underlying and normalised earnings and all the rest of it. But if you're mm-hmm. if you're an investor and you're trying to, I think there is legitimacy in trying to cut through that and look at a true. Uh, economics earnings capacity of a business and and, yep. and strip out certain costs. So things like getting your inventory wrong is, is is yeah crappy. But okay, that's not something you'd expect to happen every year. Some stock provision, <laughs> yeah. some some yeah. some yeah. stock issue to management. Okay, yeah. it's not great. But um, you know you you look through all of that, and in fact, their net profit on that basis mm. has actually jumped mm. threefold just in the last three years. Mm. And the interesting thing here is is that they own about 2.7%, they reckon, market share in the online uh, space, online retail space in Australia. Mm. Now, that, that as a sector is growing incredibly rapidly. Mm. And, and you would have to think in the longer term, given their pretty, pretty strong position, maybe not mm. the strongest, mm. and we'll mm. come to that in a moment, um, that they could probably increase that market share. Maybe if they only ever get to 10%, Mm. That would still be an, a remarkable achievement. So, ten, yeah. ten, not only a much bigger share of the pie, but a much bigger pie at that at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I actually, I'm I'm with you on this one. I think the numbers overall were were pretty good. This isn't a business that's in structural decline in any way, shape, or form. So, it just mm-hmm. comes down to price. It just comes down to how much growth do you think you can do, and that, that therein lies therein lies the interesting part of it because it, mm-hmm. it could it could just absolutely shoot the lights out and this is the, the steal of the century or it could it could stall. And yeah, and if yeah. it does, then you, you could probably argue it's still a bit overvalued. So yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's pretty much dead on, mate. I think I <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a tough um, – so I'm pretty bullish. And, but, I, but I also want to be really mindful of not only selling the bull case or overdoing the, the positivity because A, we've done it a lot before, B – these things, I've got, I've got plenty of stuff wrong before, right? So there's stuff I've been bullish on that's gone really, really, really well. Stuff I've been bullish on has gone really badly. Uh, welcome um, to the club. And that's, yeah. Right, that's just the life of the investor, right? So I, I don't want to, because we talk about it a lot, because I have a, a strong view on it, I don't want to over-egg the certainty or the, or the probability of success. <coughs> Excuse me. But I think if you think about the way this comes together, as you kind of rightly pointed out, it's really, really hard for me to imagine a scenario where they are able to continue to grow sales and not deliver a profit from that. I mean, there are, there are scenarios, right? They, mm. they screw up the supply chain. Uh, they can't keep, the, you know, they've got to push costs down too hard to get customers and so they never make enough gross margin to pay for their costs. Uh, maybe scale doesn't work out. Maybe competition gets too tough. Maybe transport costs go up. Uh, maybe sourcing costs go up. You know, there's, there's reasons why it might. But if a billion-dollar retailer can't make a buck <laughs> over, you know, over, over an extended period of time and a billion-dollar retailer growing at... 20, 30, 40% a year, depending on what the numbers end up at 15% a year, whatever the numbers end up at. Um, it's really hard to imagine. But if, but let's say they do earn nothing, then you're right. It's overvalued, probably overvalued by, you know, two or three times if that's if that happens. On the flip side, 
if you believe that that revenue growth can and will continue, because you know, y- yes, you look at the um, you look at the story of uh, you know profits not great, but forty percent more customers year on year, fifty percent more sales year on year. Let's say that's a COVID year. Let's halve it and halve it again. It's still a really good you know sales growth number. Um, <coughs> excuse me. If you can grow at any extended period of time on that basis, and you can somehow eke out some profit. And that growth goes for extended periods of time. I don't imagine it gets from a million to two million stops dead. Uh, maybe it does, by the way. But, you know, Woolies does, what, $40 billion of, of grocery sales. Um, Coggins doing $1 billion of, 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 you know, consumer electronics. Now, very different categories. But to give you a sense of the size, you mentioned two, two and a half, three percent of the market. Let's say it goes to 10% or 15% over time. Uh, again, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. The market grows as well. So I, 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 kind, of, I kind of think it's likely that will end up with more, a much bigger business revenue-wise. And if that's true, if they can just be half decent at turning that into a few cents of profit for every dollar of sales, then I think the shares should be worth multiples of the current price. And I think mm. that's, to my mind, maybe the downside is it halves from here at a worst-case scenario. Well, worst, worst case, it goes broke, right? So, you know, but in a, in a better case, not even a best case, but a better case, um, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a $20, $30, $40 share price. I, I don't think that's out of the range of, of possibilities. Now, a lot can happen between now and then. A lot of time can pass. A lot can go wrong. Competition, pricing, margins, lots of stuff. Um, but if I look at the business at the current price of 10 or 12 bucks, I just think the, the, the for me anyway, as a, as a happy, well, not happy shareholder from the share price falls, but as a shareholder who's saying, well, I, don't, I can't see that many better ideas. I'm really happy well, to, you, you to met, you, you let, we've, we've danced around it um, to this point, but and you mentioned competition, but but Amazon, right? We have to talk uh-huh. about I've we have about to that. talk about Amazon. <laughs> so Amazon already yep. ha- they only came to Australia in 2017, and they've already got more in gross yep. annual yep. sales. Yes, they've invested incredibly heavily. Mm-hmm. They've got a well-known, well-publicized tactic of of just um, eroding, just being prepared <laughs> to operate on very very thin yep. margins, just yep. to make yep. just so they can capture market share. Yeah. I think it was Morningstar report. I was reading in Business Insider or somewhere that's saying that they're expecting nine billion, that to reach nine billion in just the next five years. Right, right. And so I'm I don't think it's as black and white as a lot of people like to make out. I think there's definitely space for more than one player, more than just Amazon. I think Morningstar had them capping out at twenty five percent of the market at some point. Okay. Um in terms on that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But but either way, but but Mm. but it's, so I, I'm with you. I think that there's definitely space for Kogan to not only enjoy the rising tide of, of, of a bigger market, but even a slightly bigger share of that. I think mm. I think Amazon, though, will keep it very hard for them to enjoy much of a margin. I think over time that margin mm. shrinks. Mm. I think mm. at some point when that's a much more mature industry and maybe that's 10 years plus away. Yeah. But when you look at other sort of retailers out there like Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi, they're on PEs of 12 yeah. And we know that they tend to be pretty lumpy, low margin yeah. kind of businesses. So yeah. at some point, that's what, even though this is all sort of sexy now with, with retail and is the fast growing category, at some point it is just, they're just the retailers, right? So you have to, you have to yes, there's growth there, I think, yes. but you, yep. you have to account for, this is on a PE of 60 last year, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have to have enough profit growth yeah. um, over a, a long enough period of time that when that PE goes from 60 to 30 down to 15, um, that... That that mathematics still works out well, i.e., PE times the the earnings per share to get the share price. That still needs to be enough. There needs to be enough of a, a, a an improvement on the current price yeah. for all of that to make sense. And that's that for me is where. And as I was saying to you off air, I think I sort of ran some numbers. I put them on Strawman uh, uh, yesterday. Um, I think I think Kogan shares are undervalued. I, I but I do think there's probably. Hmm. I don't see the multiples of upside that, that, that you see. I think it's definitely possible, but uh, on a balance of probabilities, I, I, I think that's hard. It's going to be harder, I think, than, than, it, than it could be. I think that's, I think that's true. I, um, I, I, so for, I, look, I own shares in Amazon uh, and Kogan. I am a massive Amazon fan. I would happily own both. I think our members, sh- our listeners should own both. I think there's no reason not to. Um, I don't think you need to own both necessarily, but I'm happy to have both dogs in, in, in one fight, quite honestly. Um, and if Amazon does get to, if Amazon crushes Kogan here, um, I, I'm going to assume it's much, much bigger than globally. So I'm, I've, got a, I've got a foot in both camps. I mean, I just, I, I think you're right about the competition. Uh, but we know in the US, 
even old businesses like Walmart online are doing really, really, really well despite Amazon's absolute behemoth, you know, just crushing all before it. Because mm. uh, I think when I say crushing all before it, actually not, right? That's the thing. It, it's a, it has this sense of like Amazon's going to kill everyone. Amazon will kill a whole lot of physical retail businesses. I'm absolutely sure of it. And Kogan besides. Mm. Um, I really do think, I don't think, I think Amazon wins the race here. But I think, I, I think you can absolutely, I expect to make a decent amount of money owning a very decent number two player Mm. Um, and or, by the way, it's not a, not a zero chance that um, Amazon buys Kogan at some point, though I'm not banking on that. Um, but I, I think, you know, there's, there's, if Amazon gets 25% of the market, it's not going to be Amazon 25%, physical retail, everything else. Mm. The, mm. There'll be plenty of players out there who are, you know, smaller players in the same space. Just as they are in the US. eBay exists in the US. Um, JD.com sells into the US. There's a million different ways you can buy stuff online and people do. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't, as you say, I don't think it's the right thing to say. Well, Amazon, therefore, nothing else. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things. Uh, I yeah, I just, I just think it's, I think the chance. Is good. All right, let's move on, mate, because we spent enough time on Kogan, and I don't want to have any more drink. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to a little business. Well, and this is a, I, I, I've said before one of my one of my favourite go to lines every every six months is that it shouldn't be called earnings season it should be called expectation season I've said that many times here's one of example of that this is Nanasonics um, the company makes ultrasound probe disinfection machines which sounds about as boring as you'd expect except these guys are world leading in terms of the technology they are standard of care in really really big and prestigious hospital systems so if you want to disinfect an ultrasound probe. Used to whack it in some solution, spin it around a couple of times, uh, pull it out, wipe it clean, job done. I'm, I'm obviously being a little bit um, facetious, but the the uh, remaining germs, uh, viruses, other stuff, uh, were simply too high. Put it in a Trophon machine and you're getting a, a really, 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 really big fall in the number of hospital-acquired infections that happen because the disinfection is simply done more expertly. I don't own shares in nanoscience, by the way. I'm not talking my book here. Um, it is recognised as, as gold standard globally. Merrill is gold standard these days, mate. It's a bit of a, a bit of a political term these days, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. it's uh it, it is it is top standard. Um, the UK medical system, Johns Hopkins, I want to say university, although I could be wrong. It's one of those prestigious ones in the states. Um, this is this is the big deal. Mm. Uh, and so shares were up what 16 percent on I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, uh, because profit was oh no Tuesday well Sorry. down actually profit fell. And so you kind of go, hang on, profits 15%. down. 15%. Mm. Profits down 15%. Shares are up 15%. What gives, mate? So I, I have to disclose, I'm happy to disclose, I own shares in Nanasonics. <laughs> Actually, I bought some years ago at 92 nice. cents and have uh, stuck with it pretty much. I've sold down along the way, unfortunately. Hashtag humble brag. Humble brag. Uh, but yeah, it's done. <laughs> I, I look, you know, I, I'm, I think it's worth mentioning because it, it's, it's, there's so many lessons in these mm. kinds of things. It's sort yeah. of giving, giving these things time to play out because when it does, it's really nice. Um, but look, what happened here in terms of the results was that you've gotten something that um, actually sales were 12% higher when you yeah. remove uh, FX movements. And it was a tale of two halves here. So when when COVID hit, hospitals just pivoted, right, to, yeah. to dealing with that. Yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of non-essential things that required ultrasound mm-hmm. probes mm-hmm. Just, just got pushed back. And so, and a lot of their money, about three quarters of their money is made from the consumables that you put into yeah. um, these disinfecting yeah. machines, which is a whole other topic, by the way. It's, a, it's like the mm-hmm. Gillette razor blade kind of model. It's beautiful, very high margin, mm-hmm. consumable, recurring revenue stuff that they get from that. But anyway, that, that dropped away. So that, yeah. it, hit, it hit results. But when you, when you put it in context of what happened in those hospitals and now that things are opening back up again, yeah. that, and they had an incredible second half, which was just really, really, really strong. On top of that, um, the, the underlying uh, – uh, oh, they've been spending a lot of money on R&D as well. So they're a one-product company. They, they do this one Trophon device. So they've been spending a lot of money on new devices as well. And they've got something that they're going to be using for flexible endoscopes, which is a very big market, and they're going to be applying the same kind of technology. So I think the market really, really like that. There's a new audit product that they've already got out as well. Um, so it's so you've got this really strong product that dominates, still got a long way to run, yeah. really bounced back strongly in the second half. New products on the horizon. Mm. This is a company that has a fortress balance sheet, 
right? So these guys have no debt whatsoever. Cash is an incredibly formidable $96 million, yeah. which increased. <laughs> they incre- they, they th- uh, threw off $6 million in free cash flow. This this is one of those businesses yeah. that I, sl- even though I've, I've sort of felt at times, oh, geez, it's a bit expensive. Mm. I've been so happy to hold because like what scenario where where this business gets in trouble <laughs> and needs needs debt yeah, or right. needs to raise that's money right, or, right, you know, it's just, it's such an incredible business. And so I think the market just, I, yeah, I think that's why the market went mm-hmm. up. I think the market mm-hmm. needed to go up um, a little bit in this case. But uh, it is now on a PE, <laughs> we're talking about high PEs, of over yeah. 240 times. Yeah. It's uh, it's expensive, mate. And I, I so here's why maybe, so the market liked a few things. Obviously, the results are pretty good underlying. I am... I'm not surprised at all. I would expect the results to be worse, quite honestly, because if you're selling new machines to hospitals and you knock on the door in August, October, March, April, hi, I'd like to come talk to you about a new machine, please. The hospital administrator looks at you like, dude, we're in the like COVID. What, like, B- bigger fish to fry, I, my like, friend. I, I yeah. love you and I'm happy to talk to you, but mate, seriously, come on, like get stuffed. Yeah. You know, like, do you really think I haven't got anything else to do right now? Do you, you know, do you want to see me at 3 a.m. on Sunday? Because that's the only time I've got free right now. I'm kind of trying to deal with a pandemic here. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not surprised at all. In fact, I, so I was surprised it wasn't worse. Um, as you say, t- the business is both sells consumables and the machines themselves. So the, the beauty of this razor and blade model is it actually has the opportunity to make some revenue without selling new machines, which is kind of a nice thing to know. You can get some cash flow through the door while that happens, and that's always positive. Um, interesting too, mate, they released or they announced a new product because they've spent a fortune on R&D over the last three or four years. Mm. And yeah. they kind of was one of those like, oh, is it coming? Is it coming? Do you really want them to? What's going on here? Mm. Um, I got to say, it's been an active recommendation of ours for years, but um, a couple of times over the last three or four years, I've been like, Guys, maybe you should just stop spending this money because you know you, you spend this money trying to build something. You kind of you, 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 yeah, it's been a long time coming. You caught lightning in a bottle the first time with with the Trophon machine. Great, good on you. Is you really going to do it again? Like, is there really something else happening? Now it sounds like there's a product out there. It sounds like they're going to release it. It sounds like maybe it might work. And it's one of those things where if these things don't work, you spend millions and millions and millions of dollars and then just torch the whole lot. You pile it up in the, in the car park and light it on yeah. fire. Yeah. On the flip side, if you do that and you get it right. This thing's a you know, 10, 15, 20-year payday mm. where you get to sell this new technology over and over and over again to people who want it and will pay for it. Um, and you get to you know get re- recognise some economies of scale because if you're selling the Trophon machine and this mm. other thing, mm. there's two people, you know, two products, one sales call, that kind of stuff, uh, existing relationships, it really can meaningfully move the dial, right, if you get to a, a decent size. My only criticism of this is it doesn't sound like a razor and blade product. And what I liked about the Trophon thing was you sell the machine once and then you sell the consumables over and over and over and over again. Oh, is that true? Is it? I, 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 don't, I don't know, actually. I haven't looked into it. So I, I was assuming it would be based off the same technology and, and the, the same... Oh, maybe, then well, I, that's, what not, that's what I'm sure about. So maybe it is. Maybe it is. Okay. Um, that's, what, that's what I'm not sure about. I'm not stoked if it's not because I think one thing we liked about nanosonics was that razor and blade kind of idea of sell the machine once and sell the consumables, the liquids for, mm. for years and years and years after yeah, that. Yeah, love um, it. The other, thing, the other reason why it's good, of course, is that the Trophon machine, well, they've got Trophon 2, the second generation of it. These things do have patents. Mm. And at some point, the Trophon 1's technology becomes effectively open source or at least available to anybody. Mm. Um, so they are always, to some degree, trying to keep ahead of the, <laughs> of the patent cliff to make sure they've mm. got some revenue moving forward. But really good results, mate, uh, in, the, in the circumstances. Do you pay 240 times earnings for this? I think you do. Well, here's, it, look, I, I do. I updated my valuation yesterday on okay. Strawman. I think um, I think they are a little bit overvalued, but, mm. but the, you've got to again. You 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 can't take things at face value. It's always mm. <laughs> there's always devil in the detail here. So um, just yes, that's a very high multiple, but they've only got 39 percent penetration in the US, which is a phenomenally huge market. Yeah. Yeah. But get this, they've only got four percent in Europe and four percent in Asia. That's remarkably small. Right, and so nineteen percent globally yeah. that averages out to, and that's yes, just. Yeah. Uh, here's the important thing: that's just the Trophon product. Yes. Right. So the, the the thing that's interesting for me, like you were always at the end of the day trying to forecast revenue and stuff, but where where Nanosonics is is an example mm-hmm. of something mm-hmm. that's particularly interesting is that when you have become the standard of care 
And there's just really nothing too similar on a competitive position. It's like that whole thing, no one got fired for hiring IBM. When you walk into a hospital and say, our device is used by John Hopkins University and 39% of other hospitals in the US. And we're going to stop you from getting sued from hospital-acquired infections and save you a bunch of money and headache. It's such an easy sale. It's a really, compared to where they were five years ago (laughs) when it was, please come and listen to me. I've got this thing. It's really cool. Come and use it. Let me show you. Let me show you. Yeah, yeah. So, So I... I think I think <laughs> I think there is still a long, long way of, of growth to go, and they've got that sales momentum. The other thing that's interesting too is that now they they shouldn't do this, and they're not doing this. But if they wanted to, they could do this. Which is, if you and I were were the CEO, we could say, "I'm just cutting all R and D spending, mm. or I'm just going to I'm going to pull it way back. I'm going to way lower my investment in sales and marketing." So a lot of their mm. their fixed cost base has been increasing quite a lot mm. in recent years as they scale up to take advantage of this opportunity. Mm. But the under but but a lot of this spending could be brought back, and they could still can. Perfectly happy, you know, continue to sell a decent amount and service what they've got. So the true underlying economics of the business is a lot more, uh, it's masked by some degree by all this growth investment. Totally. Um, So I think, so yeah, I think, I, 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 I think they're a little bit expensive, but don't don't look at two, a PE of two forty and go, oh my god, that's insane. <laughs> uh, it's like Prometicus, right? Like same kind of drink. Um, it's the same kind of <laughs> thing there, where it, it's kind of like it's always looks super expensive, but yeah. again, it's it is yeah. the standard. It is becoming the new standard. It's got the traction. Mm, it's got mm, the momentum. Mm. It's got no no one within a QE of of what they're doing. You you can just you can just forecast revenue really really confidently. I think. Mate, um, let me let me challenge that. Just what? Well, let me play devil's advocate at least on the on the on the Nanosonics thing. So you say, well, if you take away the growth investment, look, it's actually really profitable. That P is too high, all that kind of stuff. Mm. That's that's factually absolutely correct. My general cynicism, and I'm not a cynical bloke generally. I'm actually quite optimistic and and probably you know I'm not gullible, but I like to trust people. Um, that's true, except that which company kind of ever says, oh, you know what, this isn't working. Let's just cut the growth. Let's cut the growth capex and, and run this for cash. So my only, my only challenge with that sort of stuff is like you say, if this happened, then this would happen. It's like true. But as always, the, the, you know, the biggest little two-letter two word in the English language is if. Um, are they ever really going to? I mean, you know, to the extent that you could say if they did this, then it would be worthwhile. That's true. Mm. But if they never do it, then that kind of that, that yeah. math, that logic goes straight out the window. And I, I just wonder whether um, – I wonder whether it's likely, probable, uh, possible. Uh, c- can we really base – an investment case and evaluation or something that's not likely to happen or, or may not happen. Well, well, that's it. I think it's very likely to happen. Yeah, oh, sorry. You mean? Oh, you mean? Sorry. I mean the pullback on the spend. Well, yeah. To your point is, yeah. You, know, you say, well, okay. Well, it looks expensive, but that's because they're spending all this money. If they stop spending that money, then it's actually really cheap. Uh, if they spend a lot of money and they don't get anything for it, and they keep spending that money, keep spending the money, keep spending the money. You never get the profit because they never they never kind of realise and sort of go. You know what? We thought we were a growth company, an R and D specialist. We're now going to run this for cash. That's what has to happen for that valuation methodology to actually come true, right? If they kind mm. of go, okay, next next year they say, you know what? And not and no, let's assume that theirs works. But company X, they they be spending this money. They go, you know what? Let's just stop doing that. Let's just let's just let's just realise we're not going to you know we're not going to grow anymore. We're not going to develop any new products. We've run this company for cash for the next fifteen years. Uh, guess what? Here, now the P is ten. Yeah. Like, no, no sorry, sorry, I get you. Ever, sorry. Right? Yeah, it's not likely to happen. You're right. It's not likely to happen. Um, but it is a consideration when looking at when looking at an entity, and, yeah. and you. I mean, that's what we're doing as investors. We're trying to gauge their their earnings capacity. So it's, it's one gear, unlikely to be taken. Yeah. But then when, when when I, as I said at the start, when when I look at that spend, I'm mm. absolutely as a as a shareholder happy that they're doing it and think that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Because that that's what the the CEO's role is. It's capital management, right? Take yeah. the money that you earn and, and either give it to shareholders, or if you if you think you can get a great return, you go and and play with it. Yeah. Um. So so I think they are doing that. It's just. It's just another way of looking at it and trying to baseline value. I think oh, it, it's all, it's also yeah. one of those things. To, so when I I can come to it um, at a at a pretty easy, I, I can get to value pretty mm. reasonably well just by saying again, let's like with Kogan, right? Let's go out five years. Let's say that they continue to grow yeah. at twenty yeah. percent, three hundred million dollars in revenue. They're on seventy five percent gross margin with a cost base. Let's even continue to increase it. You, you knock yeah. it up a little yeah. bit. So I sort of went through this sort of exercise. I, I get an earnings per share of about 30, 30 cents or so. Yeah, right. You know, so you only have to get to a PE of thirty-five, and you've got a yeah, share price of ten fifty, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, okay, you have got to discount that back to today's money, but that, that's where I get that six dollars yeah. fifty sort of thing from. It's not, yeah, it's not sense. out of, it's not out of, 
Yeah, and, and and when you as with Kogan, right? So the upside is really great if things go well. It's because if mm-hmm. that other product does get traction, if if a market share in Asia goes from four percent to fifteen percent, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It just yeah, it, it totally. gets it can get. Totally. Pre- it's one of those companies that I also think you because the quality is so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's XC CSL uh, pedigree. I think you've got running the ship here. Right, right, right. Um, you you don't want to overthink you don't want to overthink <laughs> evaluation too much. I think that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, mate, so much in way meaning, so much to talk about. Uh, travel companies, <laughs> God love them. I um I can't work out. This is I <laughs> I don't want to wish my life away, but I'm really 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 looking forward to looking back on on. I won't use the C word because we avoided it this far. Uh, looking back on 2020 and 2021. God, hopefully, to, please not be 2022 as well. Um, just from 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 the from the benefit of history, right? From the, with the benefit of hindsight, and kind of look back at the things that worked, didn't work, the lessons we could have learned, should have learned, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a fascinating time. That, mate, uh, <laughs> sociologists are going to write PhD after PhD on this stuff. They'll they'll never ever be short of a topic for the next 15, 20 years. Um, travel companies are kind of right in the middle of that for me. We've talked about retailers, talked about the impact on on medical devices of all things, even though in a pandemic you say, well, more medical devices, that's true, but trying to sell them during a pandemic is tough. And then you've got the travel companies who are just like right in the very, very, very epicenter of this thing. Um, Qantas Flight Centre, they've come out today, and again, we're recording this Thursday, I'll say one more time just to to date stamp it for those listening later. Uh, Qantas and Flight Centre, Qantas lost $2.3 billion. Flight Centre has lost $500 million. It is just an amazing time to try and think through the long-term impacts of this stuff. You know, the 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 companies that you look back and go, oh man, I wish I bought company X during Y, right? When mm. the downturn happened, I wish I'd bought. Or and, and conversely, the ones who were kind of fell and kept falling, never ever did recover, right? That was the death knell. Um, we haven't seen many companies go broke this earnings, uh, this last 18 months, frankly. Um Man, they're losing some cash. Alan Joyce called the period diabolical. Are we just so immune to the realities of what we expected that it just doesn't matter anymore? Is there value here? Um, I, I, I'm, you know, I saw Wedget up 6% yesterday on news that maybe possibly we get back in the air at some point. People are raving about Qantas's new vaccination ad. Um, and when, when an airline spends, you know, serious PR dollars, in the middle of a $2.3 billion loss, they're out there promoting vaccinations. You know exactly what's going on, right? This is, this is you know, they're going, what do we spend money on? We can actually get ROI. We can get a return on investment by actually <laughs> trying to get out That's there and crazy. say, please yeah. get vaccinated. It's a hell of a time to be alive. Um, uh, it, again, is anyone surprised by these losses? No, of course not. Flight Center saying they've got three years worth of cash. Qantas, I did hear some rumbles about it. People are thinking about capital raisings, which I, I, I didn't think was going to be necessary, but maybe. Um, thoughts on, on travel companies, either individually or, or generally as an industry? Uh I think well. I think what was interesting when we went through the um, coronavirus stage one. You of, said it, not me. <laughs> you got to this point of the podcast, sorry, I mentioned. I did Go too. On. Sorry. <laughs> oh, so close. <laughs> we'll let it in post. It's all good. Well, the interesting thing was is that most of the stuff I was hearing from other people was the smart stuff. That this this yeah. too shall pass. These are still pretty decent. Well, there there are yeah you you there are challenges with with airlines as we know. But you know things get yeah. stupid cheap. Yeah. This this is actually a t- an opportunity and a time to be buying. That that was right. really impressive actually. Right. A lot of right. lot of people did that. I think I think where I and I didn't um, on these kind mm. of things. Mm. And I think while the reasoning was right, the yeah. The longevity of the scenario and the extreme extremity or potential extremity of the scenario was just so hard to to know. I mean, yes. that's why things were so cheap. Is it was just such high levels of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, so so now we've got a bit more water under the bridge. Uh, we get a bit clearer picture of what's going on. The result is absolutely terrible. Yes, and yet share price in Qantas <laughs> went up after they released yeah, their results. That's right. That's you know. Right. So yeah, um, yeah. How, how, yeah. I, I think I think. People are looking past it, but it's still, for mm-hmm. me, just going to be a very uncertain, bumpy ride. And even in good times, these are, uh, well, Qantas in particular is pretty ordinary. I mean, this yeah. is the best airline in the world, arguably. Yeah. Uh, best runner airline in the world. And it's, I think that's it's right. Still, I think it's, right. It's, it's still an airline and it's still got yeah. horrible um, economics yeah. and <laughs> they, they just don't They just don't tend to do. So I don't, I, yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, mate, but... Um, yeah, we shouldn't be surprised, <laughs> but but hope springs eternal. It's probably probably it does. It does. I, I've looked, and this is, I guess, this is why I look. I've looked back at some of the price charts um, as you're talking, 
Have a look at the three-year price charts. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here because a lot of these companies have raised capital in the meantime. So we know, for example, I think Webjet effectively now has twice as many shares on issue as it did before yeah. the, the, the crash. And I think, so the first lesson I wanted to share with our listeners is be careful when it comes to share prices, right? If you look at the, I'm just pulling up now the Webjet um, three-year share price. Um, God love Comsec. It's doing the circle of death while we're recording this live, which is really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, may have to, I, may have to, I may have to revert to Google. Basically what happened with, with Webjet was they needed some cash to stay alive. So they went to the market and said, um, can we please have some money? Uh, it'd be really, really nice if you wouldn't mind. Otherwise, we're going to go broke. And shareholders, either a combination of uh, optimism, uh, <laughs> uh, realistic or otherwise, or just simply straight out fear. Look, I'm in this thing for 10, 20, 30 grand. If I don't put any money in, I lose it all. So I guess I'll give them some more cash to try and get something out of it, whichever way you want to look at it. This was a, a pre, immediately pre the crash. This was a $9.80, so call it 10 bucks because I'm just, I'll let to round things up, make it easy. $10 share price, right? It's now back to $5.60. On one viewing, you're like, wow, that's still down 45%. That's, you know, that's a big fall. If you adjust for the number of shares on issue, it's effectively back to pre-pandemic prices. Mm. And I'm... <laughs> As a shareholder, I'm happy with that. I, I bought some shares too early. Speaking of, speaking of, you know, smart people, I was one of the smart people because I bought too early rather than late. Um, I thought, oh, this, this pandemic, this is not going to be a big, big, big deal. It'll pass like SARS and MERS and it'll be fine and because I'm an idiot. Uh, so there's that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's worth remembering, right? If you look at, we just say, wow, the share price is still down 45%. Therefore, it must either be good value or it's just simply not expensive. That's easy to imagine. But I said, just remember, because there's twice as many shares, the share price should be halved even on a like-for-like. Like. So if you had a $10 share price and you doubled the share count, the share it should be $5 a share. Mm. So the fact is now $5.60 a share when it was 10 and <laughs> we're still not going anywhere. There's uh, The recovery is kind of priced in, right? And I think I, I want to just double underline that because for, for listeners who might look at the share price chart and say it still looks cheap on a per share basis, I get it. But as I said, I'm going to say another time, just to be really, really clear, you can't look at just the per share price and say, gee, it's cheaper than it was. Because as always, let's, let's, let's invoke our favourite pizza analogy, Andrew. If we'd have just simply cut the pizza, the pizza in twice as many slices, as I said, see, you've still got a slice. It's like, yeah, but the slice is half the size. That's the same kind of story we're talking about here, right? You've got to be really, really careful because uh, one, one Webjet share is not worth the same as one Webjet share was in terms of your ownership interest. And so it should be about half the price. But what that means is effectively Webjet's about the same value as it was pre-pandemic, which is a hell of a thing. Yep, absolutely. Um, and it, it's one of those things that I don't think we focus on enough as, as investors is yeah. uh, those big capital management kind of decisions, issuing new shares oh, versus raising yeah, debt, yeah. what the money is spent on. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it so often gets asked, right? So, oh, such and such is doing a capital raise at this. Is this good value or, mm. or not? Should I buy it? And, and why The answer is always, well, it depends. Like they might be raising at a really cheap price and doing everything wrong on that front, but if they go and then invent a cure for cancer with that money, that is the yeah. best thing that they ever they ever kind of did. So, yeah, um, yeah, and that, and that, that's what you have to look at here. With these these are the, this is the risk mm-hmm. that the shareholders in Webjet have faced. That the, yes, the company has survived, and yes, it's no doubt got a, a pretty good future. It's a great company, by the way, yeah. um, but. But in surviving, the, the cost that they've had to pay, um, the deal with the devil that they've done is to go out there and bring a whole bunch of new shareholders onto the register just to keep things afloat. So that's sort of, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it, can be, it can be very brutal because if you, if, you, if you take that away and say that didn't happen, well, you know, your, your returns are, are double, mm-hmm. right? It's, um, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, mate. I was going to let it go because we kind of kept talking, but I will come back to it because you've brought it back up again, which is capital management. And I think I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I reckon a CEO, a CEO, you are literally the bloke or the girl pulling all the strings, right? You've got a head of finance, a head of sales, a head of marketing, maybe they're the same person, head of operations, head of IT, head of people. You are the, you are the orchestra conductor. Mm. And so you've got someone whose job it is to get the best out of your sales team, the person who's got to do the best job of marketing and product design, et cetera, et cetera. The job that you have along with your CFO is that capital management thing, is literally trying mm. to work out what do I do with the assets of the business? Mm. And yes, the CFO arguably should be giving you good advice on that. And so maybe as a CEO, you could afford to be a generalist, but it's really, really important to think about how many boards, uh, particularly of the medium and, and small companies, where the boards themselves may not have really long and deep executive experience, how many of those are genuinely looking at capital management as a thing? 
Mm. How many are saying, you know what, I'm going to hire Alan Joyce or I'm going to hire... Um, See, it's changed so quickly, mate. I can't think of any good other ones. Bread Banducci at Woolworths, or I'm going to hire. Um, what's, what's your mate at Prometicus's name? Huppet? Sam Huppet? Sam, Sam Huppet. Sam Huppet at Prometicus. I'm going to hire. You know, oh, we're, we're going to retain Rosalind Kogan, a CEO of Kogan. Drink. Um, mm-hmm. Because they are great capital allocators. And I'm going to argue that in almost every one of those cases, that is not the primary focus of the board who hired that person. Because mm-hmm. simply. You ha- it's very hard for I mean Brad Bandish I'm sure did a wonderful job running Woolworth supermarkets I'm sure they did a great job running the group um, but is he was he was he part of his capital management skills probably not and yet you would say generally speaking he's going to have a head of supermarkets he's going to have a head of we had a head of liquor operations they sold they sold those um, the capital management thing is really 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 important it's the thing that even as it's almost everything it's almost we didn't everything. talk about anywhere near enough right like we talk you and I talk about operations and we talk about other stuff mm. and you know what they choose to buy or not buy the amount of debt they take on or don't, the amount of shares they issue or buy back. I mean, arguably a good capital allocator, as much as share buybacks and issuers are probably, on one hand, they're done too frequently at the wrong prices. Mm. A good capital allocator should be doing more of that, right? Yeah. Like if you're, if, you're, if you're the Woolies boss and the shares are $20, you should, be buy, you should be borrowing as much as you possibly can and buying the whole lot back, mm. right? Such an easy investment, right? Right, mm. but, but no one ever, ever, ever does it. Mm. On the flip side, when they're you know, trading at overpriced value and you've got plenty of cash on the balance sheet, the question is, well, hang on, you know, should, should we be issuing more shares anyway? Because yeah. at 50 bucks is clearly overvalues the business and they just don't do it. And I don't know whether it's culture, whether the, the investors and fundies are kind of arguing about it. Um, all the stuff that comes with that. I just, I just think it's worth just thinking out loud about whether or not we're hiring and as investors thinking enough about the capital allocation skills. On one hand, I, I'll, I'll argue at the other side of my mouth, mate, and say... If they're not going to do much capital management anyway, then maybe it doesn't matter. Brad Banducci's best value might actually be, or the CEO of Woolworths, whoever it is, best value might be just making sure you get the pricing, the promotions, the branding right, and run the supermarket as an operating business. That's what we want you to do. We don't want you to do capital management at all. Just leave it on the shelf. Maybe that's better because it avoids making silly mistakes or something else. Um, I, I'm kind of a bit torn a little bit because on one hand, they can add real value. On the other hand, I'd rather them stay out of the kitchen if, they, you know, if, they, if they're not comfortable with it. Yeah, it's just um, un- maybe, it's un- maybe overdo it if they're not going to do any capital management. Maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know. It's just unavoidable too at, at, at some degree as well. I mean, look at all the massive stuff-ups that have happened in Australian corporate history. They're all capital management decisions, you know, whether it's Woolies going into Masters or, uh, you know, a, a Crown mm. expanding into Sydney or, you know, whatever it's been. There's a million different examples. Exactly. They're exactly. all those big capital allocation decisions. So it is It is every – I think yeah. you need to have someone who's operationally focused, mm-hmm. sure, but but when when you're making money, yeah. the, 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 the ultimate uh, question at the end is do I give it to shareholders or do I keep it? And if the, yes, if the question yeah. is do I keep it, it's yeah. like that as a shareholder, cool, absolutely keep it. But <laughs> as, long as, as long as you're the rainmaker, as long yes, as you take yes, that yes, money yes. – and either improve the efficiency of your existing operation or branch out into something else, then then yes. give it to me. And you've taken me beautifully, mate, to the second point I wanted to make because as as portfolio managers of our own portfolios, professional or amateur, we are also capital managers, right? We oh, are yes. in the job of capital allocation. And Absolutely. We need to improve those skills as individuals, both as professionals and amateur alike. But it's also that question of like, what do we really want our companies to do? Mm. Because, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of people who will say, hey... I would like, um, you, you, I would like these dividends, please. Bank shareholders, right? I would like these dividends, and fine. But is that really the best use of the cash? Well, I just want the money. Well, if you just want the money, you don't want to, you know, you don't want the to make good decisions. Then maybe there's other ways of, of earning income, or at least being being thoughtful about what that income might look like. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, as individual investors, if you're sitting there thinking about your portfolio right now. A, you've got to make sure your money's in the right places. And if we're going to ask our CEOs to buy and sell judiciously, then we should do the same. Um, and similarly, you know, in terms of how we think about the companies that we own, do you really, you know, how, how important is that bank dividend at 4.5% if the capital doesn't grow versus buying a, a growing business like, I'll use Prometicus for the example, where you could have sold off small slices of that every year for the last 10 years and done, or maybe five years, and done really, really well. And mm. so, your own capital management decisions, should I run this business for cash or should I reinvest it? Should I be effectively buying back shares or, or selling more shares? We can take the same approach to our own investments and I think that's, it's just, it's just a different way of thinking. There's no, again, there's no easy answers and no absolute or, or perfect answers but we should be thinking about exactly the same sorts of things in our own portfolio and in the businesses that we buy on exactly that same basis.
Yep. Every, everything, that, that's just such a huge epiphany for me uh, whenever I had it years ago, which is everything, every decision is one of opportunity cost. Yeah. It's thousands of companies. There's, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. Bitcoin, there's what emu farms, there's anything. I just, so I've, <laughs> I've only got X dollars, no matter how yeah, rich I am, yeah. whether I'm playing with $10 million or $10,000, you know, I've, yeah, exactly. I've, I've got to choose what ponies I'm putting, putting those jockeys on. Yes, yes. Um, and, and I do need to, I do need to, yeah. to change yeah. things as, as my perceptions changes, as news mm, changes, mm. as things evolve different ways, different valuations are realised. You don't want to yeah. overthink it. But yeah, you're, you're right, mate. It's, it's capital allocation. That's, it's the beginning, middle and end. It's everything. It really is. It really is. And, oh, well, yes. And, and, and obviously good operations, right? But that, that kind of goes to part of the, part of yes. the uh, capital allocations, buying the right businesses. Mate, let's finish with a chat about a company that has been in the news on and off for a very long time, and that's a company called Wise Tech. Now, if you watch the ABC, was it 7.30, I think, the CEO, Richard White, was on years ago. Oh. oh. Or he was asked about, asked about the, um, the short case and some of the capital allocation decision, and he just didn't have a good answer. It was just a car crash of an interview. The, the short sellers were circling all over this thing. Just, you know, it was going to go to hell, and it was all, you know, fraud and all that kind of stuff. It was all those... The usual short seller, you know, activist short seller allegations where they make the glossy report, use a lot of emotive language, throw it in the public domain and watch the carnage. And WiseTech really got smashed, absolutely smashed at one point. And then yesterday, at one point, the shares were up 58%. This is Wednesday, the 25th. They were at 58% at one point. They closed up about 28%. Uh, so the gain halved during the trading day, but still up by well, over a quarter, almost a third. Um a heck of a gain, mate. All-time highs for WiseTech. And it's worth just kind of doing the both two things. I want to, I want to do, do a bit of a history and then a bit of a, a question. I'll talk, talk about short selling, not for too long. Um, but it's worth, uh, for me, I, I'm not a WiseTech shareholder. I've never recommended the stock. I've watched it from the sidelines. It was one of those companies, though, that the short sellers loved jumping all over. It was high value, hard to understand what it did, opaque, lots of acquisitions. And they made merry hell with the share price. And they scared a truckload of people. I was going to say a different word then, but truckload is better for a uh, G-rated podcast. A truckload of people mm-hmm. were scared out of the stock. The shares crashed because obviously the short sellers must be right because they're short sellers and gee, if they're circling the thing, then where there's smoke, there's fire, all that kind of good stuff. Except there wasn't. And the shares now are up something like threefold on what they were at the worst of that short selling attack when people just freaked out and sold thoughtlessly. I hope there's not too many of our listeners who are among that group, but there might be some who saw the short case, went, well, I don't know, I guess I better sell just in case. And unfortunately have cost themselves probably a two and a half or three bagger in the meantime, at least thus far. It's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough story to tell. I guess I wanted to highlight that because I've got, look, I've got a lot of love loss for short sellers. Um, they can do their thing, knock themselves out. There's actually some really respectable decent people doing the right thing and there's a whole lot of charlatans out there trying to create carnage they're the ones I really actively dislike um, and they cost a whole lot of people a lot of money anyone who sold on the way through because they just simply got scared because of this short sell report have absolutely been taken for a ride mate and I don't know I, I, I've said before and I always get flamed on social media whenever I say this I would happily not have short selling in the market I've said I'd ban it it's, a, it's obviously a bit of poetic license I'm not going to be in a position to ban it anytime soon I don't like short selling. I don't think it adds anything of meaning to the market, uh, at least not in terms of the value that it, that it costs people. And again, look at the, the the lost potential on WiseTech for an example of that. Um, mm. And part of the growth yesterday was the reverse of that, right? All those short sellers who still bought the story saw the results, which I think profit doubled and they were expecting it to double again next year. I think, is that is that roughly right? Yep. Um, and yep. and in, in doing so, the short sellers went, Oh God, we're in trouble here. Because don't forget, when you're a short seller, if you're if you buy long, which the rest of us do, you buy shares that you think are going to add value. Your upside is effectively unlimited. Your downside is limited to 100. percent All you can lose is your investment. If you're a short seller, you've got the inverse. You can only make 100 percent if the shares go to zero, and your downside is unlimited in terms of if the share price keeps going up, you've got to pay even more to close that short position. So they'd run for the exits at a million miles an hour yesterday. It was just extraordinary. That's why the share price jumped. So that's part of the share price jump story. Um, but uh, I, I don't know, mate. It's a YSEC doing really, really well, which I kind of like to see because we like seeing Australian businesses do well, generally speaking. Um, but also the share price, yes, look really great results. It deserves to be higher. But a lot of the action yesterday was far, far more about traders trying to close positions before they got whacked uh, rather than actual kind of 
assessment of the business, and that's why it went from a 58% gain to a 28% gain in a single day. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man, so much to say about both, both of those things, both WiseTech and, <laughs> and short selling. So, yeah, I think – so it was a very strong – you know, doubling your profit was fantastic, particularly when there's been challenges with the global logistics chain and they do software mm. for, for that kind of mm. stuff. Um, but what was interesting for me was that actually a lot of the growth that we saw was organic. I, I yeah. from it wasn't all from um, acquisitions, which 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 has been a big driver in the past and yeah. and, and a big part of the short seller attack. Mm. And the other thing is they delivered one hundred so one hundred and five million dollars in net profit in accounting mm. statutory mm. net profit. Mm. But the free cash flow, so this is all of the op- money from operations minus any sort of necessary investments. Mm. That was one hundred and thirty nine dollars, one hundred thirty nine million dollars rather. Um, so it kind of it kind of uh, undermined a couple of the key planks of the short argument, mm. which is mm. why we saw that thing. So it's going phenomenally well. I put it back into the camp, and they're, and they're also, by the way, forecasting some some more strong growth. But they, they, this is another company that's on a stratospheric valuation. 140 is is the PE that's here. Yeah. Um, unlike with Nanasonics, and the, I actually struggle to sort of make that one make sense because it is it is uh, there's a lot baked baked into that. Yeah. Um, in terms of short selling, I'm I'm more sanguine. I'm I'm kind of to let them have their fun. It just <laughs> it just means that if you're going to be an investor, it is a risk that you have to face, and that if you do yeah. face that risk, you need to be well prepared for it because it is unfair. It is wrong what what a lot of these companies do if they don't really yeah. have strong merit to it. They're just trying to capitalize on a bit of fear and and send prices down. But yeah. again, I, I I guess I'm more sanguine about it because I feel as though. I've always your your job is always to know more than the other person of the other half of the trade, right? <laughs> so, so if this creates an opportunity, uh, I think I think it's actually a good thing because at the end of the day, what I know as an investor, and this is the game that I play, is that it ends up being a weighing machine, not a voting machine. And if the company <laughs> delivers even close to what your ex- yeah. expectations are, yeah. you you will be outed as right at, at the end of the day. So yeah. it, it all it all comes back to just having conviction. Although I, I take your point, they they can be it can be a pretty scummy part of the market. Look, and, and, and people, look, to be really fair, people will absolutely say about, about people who go and sell a long case, like I've talked about Kogan every second week for three months. Oh, you're just pumping the price. You're just trying to get the price up. You know, you're trying to create uh, the opposite of fear. You're trying to create greed. You're trying to create optimism. You're trying to push the share price up. Now, I'm not doing it for that reason. I own shares. I'd happily own shares if I was kicked off the podcast tomorrow. Um, so people do argue both ways and the ones who do tend to be the ones who don't like the fact I don't like short sellers and try and argue the reverse. You know, that's true to some degree. You know, there is there are, there are people trying to make money by pushing prices up. Uh, we've seen plenty of... Yeah, I think there's merit to that you know, argument. Yeah, there's been, there's been some... There's been some Questionable decisions slash questionable potential alleged. Well, people are always <laughs> talking their people are always talking their own book, right? There's, and there's not necessarily that. something nefarious about that because if you're yeah. genuine and you liked it, why wouldn't you own it? Type thing. It's yeah. about it's about you know fairly disclosing it and disclosing it for genuine reasons. But yeah, that's the, I, that's the thing that you say fairly. Fairly is the important point, right? Because yeah, yeah. my issue with something is twofold. The first is you can we know that people perceive fear, uh, also the fear of loss at three times the the kind of the uh, impact of the same equivalent gain, mm. right? So effectively, we feel we feel just the same about a 10% loss as a 30% gain in terms mm. of the, the equivalent emotions, right? We just simply, mm. we hate loss that much more. And the fear created by a, by a you know, we've seen it, a, a, you know, a 40-page glossy, you know, short case put in the AFR or the SMH to, to stoke fear. Shares, price, shares fall 20, 30, 40%. I don't remember the last time a, 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 a Motley Fool <laughs> report or a straw man uh, straw drove a 30% gain in the share price, right? The, the It's an asymmetric outcome and, and the shorters know that, right? And so, if I honestly, if we had people out there pushing shares up 30% on the back of, back of, back of, back of let me spit it out, um, a long report, I'd actually agree with you, but I think that we know that the the, the differences are, are that way. The other thing I would say too is my biggest issue is actually a market issue per se, mate. It's just, you know, for you and I, like you and I have been around long enough not to get scared by that stuff. And so, you know, I, I own corporate travel shares. I have for years. They've been the target of at least one big short thesis where the share price went from 30 to 18 or something like that. Um, and, you know, I was happy to hold. It kind of gave me the irrits and it was all, you know, baseless and we got away, got on with it. Um, but but what worries me about is that the people listening to us or the people aren't listening to us, the mum and dad investors who simply went, oh, my God, there must, there's smoke, there must be fire. I better sell just in case. That's where real value is lost, right? For you and I, we go, hey, wise tech shit, let's buy it 18 bucks. Great. Great, value, great opportunity for us. The The... The mature, experienced, level-headed investor who's been around the block a few times goes, hey, great buying opportunity. I, I just worry about those people who are 
freaked out by the potential losses and kind of go, I don't care if it's real or not, I'm selling just in case. I, I that's where you crystallise those losses. Yeah, I do too. I, I really feel for But then, then, then the trouble with that is is that that's you know, shares can fall 30% without a short sell attack as well. <laughs> they really and can. There's, there's, all, there's really any can. number of opportunities for inexperienced investors to freak out on these <laughs> kinds of things, which which is just another argument for, you know, know what you're doing. Um, yeah. yeah, true. Uh, so, yeah. Very true. Mate, we're probably done. Will you come back on Sunday for me? Yeah, let's do it. Happy to. Now, before we finish, I heard a whisper around the traps. There was a new podcast called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. Now, oh, I, I don't heard know, something about that. Yeah. I don't know for sure whether that's true, although hypothetically if it was true, there might be an interview with Stephen Kukuls on that podcast feed. So if our listeners hypothetically were to search The Good Oil with Scott Phillips on their podcast feed, on their podcast machine, they might just find that podcast, they might just find that interview, and there's plenty more to come. So if they hypothetically subscribed, they would hypothetically get more episodes when they dropped. Is all I'm saying. And just I, I, I don't like to deal in these sort of you know whispers and rumors and stories, but I, I'm told that it's actually a thing. Hypothetically, I think it was ranked number two on the podcast charts. Oh, I look, I wouldn't. I could have been told. I wouldn't someone. say that, but if you said that, I couldn't disagree with you because at the <laughs> moment, on both the Apple and the podcast, uh, Pocket Casts podcast charts, it's number two in business. It was number twenty-one overall, 20, 21st ranked podcast in Australia. Hypothetically. Allegedly hypothetically correct. I, I, it, w- it would be churlish of me. It would be <laughs> selfish. It would be really, in a, you know, I, I'm not that sort of person, mate. I wouldn't want to say it. But given you said it, I couldn't disagree with you, put it that way. <laughs> um, thank you, mate. It's very kind of you. Hey, um, if you do want to, yeah, if you want to listen to a, it's an interview podcast about business and finance, investing, economics, um, Stephen Kukulis, The Economist. We're going to have Eliza Owen coming up, um, the property head of Australian research for CoreLogic. Let's talk through what's going on in the property market. We've got a CEO lined up. No names, no pack drill, but it might rhyme with Rosalind Kogan. Uh, we've got others coming as well. There's heaps of good stuff on the way. Um, interesting little business too. One that uh, you might not have heard of, but it's in the e-commerce space. That's coming up. Uh, lots of good stuff coming up on The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. I Can I say too, mate, I, um, I think I might have said this before, I hate the fact it's called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips. It feels really vain and kind of one of those, you know, look at me names. We had to do that according to the people at Listener because there's apparently other podcasts called The Good Oil and if you search The Good Oil, you get all these other ones. Yeah. And so they made me call it The Good Oil with Scott Phillips so people could search for that specific string and make sure they found the podcast. So I, I apologise in advance for making it feel like it's all about me. Uh, I, I would. I, I just wanted it called The Good Oil. I never never suggested it be called The Good Oil with Scott Phillips but that's what it's called. So You're always, always going to be lucky if The Good Oil wasn't taken. There's, there's you know... <laughs> You, 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 there's a podcast like being launched every second yeah, minute. So, that's right. You know, <laughs> More it's hard to come up with an original. Source. Hard to exactly. come up with an original name these days. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good, but yeah. Yep. So anyway, that, that's that's why it's called that. I'm not I'm not doing it to mention my own name because that's just cringeworthy. But there you go. <laughs> the good oil with Scott Phillips. Have a look. Um, nice. Speaking of which, though, mate, uh, if they're not doing that, they should get a straw man, right? Absolutely, check it out. Um, just be aware, I, I should point out that it is, since we've made the switch to freemium, the, the free site is a little bit restricted at this stage. We're going to come back and sort of oh, tidy okay. that up a little bit. So it is a members-only sort of arrangement at this point in time. But yeah, check it out. You can have a play play around with $100,000 of play money and, and uh, get a bit of experience on the market. There you go. So Andrew's going to give you $100,000. That, that's what I heard, I think. $100,000 straw dollars. Straw dollars? Like they convertible to cash? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no not hey. at all. Is that, is that like Bitcoin then? Just kind of like play money? Just play ah, money. I see what you're doing. <laughs> All right. Let's come back on Sunday. In the meantime, please do subscribe to the Motley for Money podcast and the good oil with Scott Phillips if you want. Um, you can do it at the usual podcast places and give us a review if you like what we're doing. Um, the stars really do help. We got a couple of really nice reviews early on for the good oil too, mate. So uh, thank you to those who, who took the time to do that. We mo- we will have a, a an episode of... Uh, of the good oil. We're putting the first episode in this feed. If it's not there already, it'll be there very soon. So you can have a listen to the, the podcast and find out a little bit more about what you might hear and why you might want to subscribe. In the meantime, we'll be back next, so not next Sunday, this Sunday, two days time. We'll open your mailbag and find out what you've got to ask us and we'll do our best to give you semi-reasonable answers. Until then, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.